I didn't know Miss Mary Watts very well, so I can't stand up here and act like I did. But um, I do have one memory of her that was a specific interaction we had. And it was when I first started coming to church here, and it was probably a couple years ago. And she was just dead set on convincing me that she was Abigail's grandma. And uh, I guess in a way she is. And uh, so I, I, I had met her enough to know that she was mischievous and I think you guys that knew her better probably have a lot more stories like that to tell. But um, she is Abigail's grandma and it's because Jesus unites us in a family. And I have grandparents here and uh, parents and aunts and uncles, and I, I'm not talking about just the ones sitting over there, but uh, the other guys too. And I think, uh, I hope that the message today, I think it'll be fitting for just what's going on. So, Pastor Philip is with Haley, traveling, going and seeing family. Uh, David, the second string, called me a couple days ago and said, we're down to third string. So um, He's sick. He caught something from his, his brother and his sister-in-law. So, um, I'm glad to get to, I'm glad to, to be here and uh, share God's word with you guys this morning. And I hope all you guys got to have a time to slow down a little bit or speed up depending on your family for Thanksgiving and you had fun me and my family uh, my uncle for the last four or five years we have shot clay birds at our family get togethers and that's a lot of fun gives people something to do I know families like to do different things some families like to do things like improv dancing um, I don't know what you guys did but I hope you had a good time and if you didn't if you didn't have that with family. I hope that you find a place here at First Baptist where you can, where you can join people and uh, celebrate with them when those times come around. So, so what I'm going to talk about today is from my theology class. So I've really enjoyed my theology class this semester, and we're going to take a look at Jesus throughout the whole Bible, and that's why. Uh, the title of the sermon today is An Eternal Story, and so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a lot of scripture from the Old Testament and how it was fulfilled hundreds, sometimes thousands of years later in Jesus, and my hope is just that you'll come away with a, a better idea of God's story of humanity and of the whole Bible uh, as a whole, so... Kelsey, you could go to the next slide. So this is all our verses. When I did this at the BSU, I had other people read the verses, but I'm going to be reading all of them today. So we have a lot to go through, but um, this is what we're looking at. Your verses on the left, you can see those are mentions of Jesus in the Old Testament, and then on the right you have uh, the fulfillment or the looking back on those prophecy in the New Testament. So I'm going to start in Genesis 3. Um, if you want to flip to all those verses, you can. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it, but you could. I would be impressed. I have sticky notes all in mind, so this doesn't take uh, take all day. I never did the Bible drill when I was little, so 
Jesus in the Old Testament <clears throat> starts in Genesis 3.15, and we have there the first promise of redemption. And Genesis 3.15 says, when speaking to Adam and Eve, God is speaking to them, and he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this is the first gospel promise. Um, when he speaks of the offspring of the woman, and he's talking about Jesus, who will crush the head of the serpent, um, even though the serpent will, will injure him, he will not prevail. And Charles Spurgeon uh, has a quote, and I think I've got it on the next slide. But about, yeah, about Genesis 3.15, Charles Spurgeon said, This is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the surface of this earth. It was a memorable discourse indeed with Jehovah himself for the preacher and the whole human race and prince of darkness for the audience. And I thought that was just an awesome picture. From the very beginning, uh, we messed it up, and God said, don't worry, I'm going to fix it. And this is how this is the, the first allusion to the good news and the gospel promise. Then we move forward, and we have in Genesis 12, um, the promise that that redemption is going to come through Abraham. And so to well, Abram at this point, he says, The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. one of my many sticky notes so that's the promise to Abraham and then we have in Galatians 3 8 and 9 uh, Paul looking back at that promise and he says scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham all nations will be blessed through you so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith and so there's that promise fulfilled he's saying it's fulfilled through Jesus and then I have Revelation 5, 9 up there, and Revelation 7, 9 is very similar. Um, and that's actually John in Revelation saying that this has been fulfilled when he, he has a vision of um, people from all nations being redeemed. And so we have this promise through Abraham uh, that the whole world would be blessed. And then we have Paul looking back on it, saying it's through Jesus. And then we have John doing the same thing. We get a little further along in Genesis. <clears throat> And we learn that this blessing is going to come through Abraham, and it's going to come from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49, 9 and 10. And it reads, You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So we have a promise of a ruler from the tribe of Judah that the, no, the nations will obey him. And then we see that in Revelation 5.5. 5, John refers to Jesus as that lion from the tribe of Judah. He says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I want you to, to recognize these first two verses have fulfillment in Revelation. So our very beginning of the Bible, first book of the Bible, has its fulfillment at the very end of the Bible. And I think that's, that's something of note. Um, thousands of years apart. And he's saying he's looking back on these promises of God. And so then <clears throat> we have the promise of redemption. It's going to come through Abraham. It's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And then we have in Deuteronomy, Moses speaking. If I can find it. So Moses is speaking um, to, to, the, to the people. And he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And so then we go to Acts. Moses is saying there's going to be a special prophet that is like him. And in Acts 3, 19 and 23, <clears throat> we have... Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who listens does not anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. So Moses speaks of a prophet that will be like him. We get to the New Testament, and Jesus um, is saying, Yeah, that's me, right? And so he's the fulfillment of, of that promise from Moses. And <clears throat> okay, not quite there yet. Now we'll go to, to Second Samuel. Seven, twelve through 16 and this is a promise uh, from God to David so David's God's making a promise that this savior this special prophet this redeemer is going to come from the line of David and in 2nd Samuel 7 12 through 16 we have when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. <clears throat> This would be a good time to talk about prophecy just a little bit. Uh, so our, or at least my preconceived notions about prophecy are not really the way that the Bible and God reveals prophecy and handles prophecy. So we might think of prophecy as something like, well, on Sunday, I think uh, the Cowboys are going to beat the Patriots by three points. And that comes true. And 
I'm a prophet because I predicted something like that. And that's not really how prophecy seems to work in the Bible. Um, prophecy in the Bible has a near and a far fulfillment, or a partial and an ultimate fulfillment. So this promise to David was partially fulfilled in Solomon, his son, right? So Solomon ruled on the throne. He built the first temple. But obviously his kingdom did not endure forever. He was not the promised son. And so as most things are, we would wish for them to be more clear, but God has his way of revealing these things. So partial and then the ultimate fulfillment for this would be in Jesus in the everlasting kingdom. <clears throat> and that's not just something uh, I made up or that we came up with later because this promise to David became um, a, a subject of future prophecy. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many other referred to this, um, to this prophecy to David. Um, so what I'm saying is they knew that it hadn't been fulfilled completely. They were still looking for the fulfillment of it. And when we go to Luke 1, 31 and 33, we see the ultimate fulfillment of it is in Jesus. So Luke 1, 31 and 33 says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So we see that it was not Solomon's kingdom who never ends, but Jesus' kingdom. <clears throat> now we move on. We're going to move on to a messianic psalm, which is in Psalm 22. <clears throat> and I think, well, this psalm is just really astounding. There's a lot of messianic psalms you can go look at that allude to a Messiah that uh, are prophetic, but we're just going to look at this one. And it's Psalm 22, 14 through 18. And it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Okay. <clears throat> I want you to notice the language of piercing my hands and feet, um, of his bones being out of, or of his, yeah, his bones being out of joint and of uh, his enemies casting lots for his garments, right? Because when we look at Matthew 27, 34 through 35, and describing the crucifixion of Jesus, we have, there they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Uh, you can see he referred to his dry mouth back in the psalm, it's dried up. It says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And that's, those and in other places, it'll, it'll describe, of course, Jesus' hands were pierced in the crucifixion and things like that. Um, but the thing about Psalm 22 is its prediction of Christ's suffering in 
minute detail was written a thousand years in advance. Um, a thousand years before Jesus comes, and it says, his mouth was dried up, his hands and feet were pierced, they cast lots for his garments, and uh, his bones were out of joint. Uh, from my understanding of the crucifixion, your muscles, for one, you have to push yourself up on the cross to give your, your diaphragm room to breathe. Um, and when your muscles begin to give out and you can no longer hold yourself up, your bones come out of joint because you can no longer hold them up. So his sh shoulders would have come out of joint. And so an impossible prophecy, really, by man's standards. It was a thousand years in advance. And uh, another interesting side to that is that crucifixion hadn't even been invented when this psalm was written. So crucifixion came about about 300 years later. So a thousand years in advance to Jesus' suffering, 300 years in advance to crucifixion uh, before, I believe, the Persians and the Medes came up with it. So, yeah, I, I don't know, it speaks for itself. <clears throat> and then we go to Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. And Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 reads, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah here is talking about Jesus as a redeemer, as taking our sin upon him. And I only read two verses, but really most of Isaiah 53 just says that over and over about Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. And then when you go to look at 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter looks back on Isaiah and uses the same language, right? By his wounds you have been healed, you were like sheep going astray. And Isaiah, the prophecy in Isaiah is really, it's considered the most significant book concerning prophecy. <clears throat> a few other places. Uh, in Isaiah 7, he says that a virgin or a young woman will give birth to God with us. Isaiah 9, uh, there will be one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Obviously, Isaiah was not talking about uh, any normal person, right? You're not going to call normal people Mighty God or Wonderful Counselor. And on the next slide, I've got a couple of quotes about the prophecy in Isaiah. And uh, Kyle Yates, who was a professor at um, Southern Seminary, says that it's the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. So when you look at Isaiah and him looking forward to Jesus, uh, that's the importance, the gravity of it. Uh, I really like this quote from Delitzsch, who was a 19th century German theologian. And he says, of course, Golgotha is where Jesus was crucified. And he writes about Isaiah, which was written... 700-ish or somewhere in their years before the crucifixion. He says, it looks as if it had been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha. It's, he's saying is, you couldn't have sat there and visually seen the crucifixion and described it any better 
than this prophecy did from hundreds and hundreds of years before. So, you can go back to the main one, Kelsey. Um, so we have God's promise, uh, promise of redemption that comes through Abraham from the tribe of Judah, a special prophet, prophet like Moses. He will come from David's line. He will be crucified, pierced, um, and he's our redeemer. He pays for our sins. And now we get down to our last couple. We're going to go to Daniel 7. <clears throat> In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, this is talking about the messianic title uh, that Jesus claims in the New Testament. And he says, well, this isn't him claiming it. We'll get there. But Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, so we have a promise, the Son of Man, person that's going to show up on the clouds, and the whole world's going to worship him. And then we have in Mark 14, 61 through 62. This is a, a Jesus is being interrogated, and he says, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer when they asked him questions. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying, the one who all of the nations will worship, the one who comes on the clouds is me. And after that, they... Um, tore their clothes and wanted to kill him because he was claiming, claiming to be God. <clears throat> and then lastly, something I learned while doing this, and I'm sure I had read it before, but I didn't, I don't know, things become, I think we just progressively gain awe and respect for God as we continue to learn things. And one of those things was that even Jesus' birthplace was predicted. And that was in Micah 5, 2, his birthplace, and it refers to his eternal nature. So Micah 5, 2, says, but you, Bethlehem, um, yeah, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, are from of old, from ancient times. And then, of course, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.1 tells us, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and so on. So, you see from beginning to end uh, the promise of God from the very beginning, right as soon as we screwed it up, really. Uh, he says, I'll fix it. And then we have this story of how that comes about, the people that it comes through, how it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, where... Um, he'll be born, the nature of his sacrifice. All of this is told for thousands and hundreds of years before it actually comes about in Jesus. And so what does this mean? Um, well, for one, the Old Testament anticipates the coming Messiah, and the, Jesus test and the New Testament testifies that he has come in Jesus. 
So Old Testament says he's coming. New Testament says here he is. Um, so, and another thing is that the Bible is really a story of God's redemptive plan for humanity from the beginning of time as we know it. And this teaches us, for one, about God, that he's extremely patient and meticulous and loving that he would uh, come up with this plan and this um, endeavor to save us. And the God, so it shows us the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. You know, you'll hear some discrepancy. Sometimes people have a hard time reconciling the two. Um, and really, the Bible can be confusing at some times. There's a lot of different books. They're written in different genres by different people at different times, and they have different focuses. But this story unites all of them. They're all centered around this redemptive story for us. And, and another thing that... So the Old Testament isn't just good history. It's not just a guidebook, and it's not just meant for encouragement or teaching. It is, and it is all of those things, but it's also ultimately this plan of redemption, of God saying, um, come to save you, to make things as they are. And you're invited to that, to that redemptive story. And so, and I think, do I have another, another quote on the next slide, Kelsey? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I cut it off. That's okay, you can still read it. So, the Old Testament writers did consciously and knowingly write and point to the Messiah as being a special son, born in the line of David, with the special divine nature that belonged to God alone. So, this wasn't something that was made up later. Like, these people were anticipating it. God's people were anticipating this Savior all along. Jesus didn't just show up out of nowhere. This isn't just some incoherent story, uh, which I would argue some other beliefs would be. Um, like This one makes sense. It's um, it's cohesive. It has a beginning. It has a meaning and a morality and an ending for us. It has a big picture. And so I hope this morning that you see the impossibility of it, really. Uh, I've found myself a couple of times saying, well, that's, that's impossible. And without look, God, it really is impossible. And so it's just um, evidence of his defined hand in history working. And as I get towards the end here, we have to think about what it means for us, right? Like this Savior means something for us. It's not just this old story um, or a, a history, but it means something for us. Like we've all been bought back, and it was a long journey of God's plan to get there. And um, it reminds me of the verse I read in Isaiah 53 6 which says like like sheep we've all gone gone astray and so let us not go astray like many through history have <clears throat> I, I added this to the sermon yesterday um, and you might wonder what I'm talking about for a minute but I'll, I'll wrap it together uh, we, we've also been covering eschatology in my theology class, and eschatology is kind of the study of the end times and things. Um, and towards the end of, well, at the end, the conclusion of the eschatology, Russell Moore, who wrote in our theology book, says, um, 
this is what he encouraged us to do so that your theology, your eschatology becomes real. And he talks about um, going to uh, a cemetery. And he says, walk about and see the headstones weathered and ground down by the elements. Contemplate the fact that beneath your feet Contemplate the fact that beneath your feet are men and women, women who once had youthful skin and quick steps. Sorry. And hectic calendars, but who are now piles of forgotten bones. And, uh, but it doesn't end there. He doesn't finish like that, thankfully, right? But he says, This stillness will one day be interrupted by a shout from the eastern sky, a joyful call with a distinctly northern Galilean accent. And that's when life really gets interesting. Um, so yesterday, I went to the cemetery. Kelsey, you could go to the next slide. It's funny because I've been thinking about it for her. I've been thinking about going for a while. Um, I'd, never, I'd never seen my granddad's headstone. I don't know why it took me 24 years to go see it. But uh, And my my grandma's name's on the headstone. I'd like to think that there's one uh, with all, we all have one with our name on it waiting for us. Um, but yeah, I went and visited. I drove around for a while and looked at a lot of the headstones here. I mean, there's, there's thousands of them. And I'd encourage you to go look at them, see what people wrote on them. Kelsey, you want to go to the next slide? Uh, people put a lot of different stuff on them. So um, the one in the top left there is of a family fishing. So probably something they like to do together. Uh, the, the other one has a combine with an auger filling up a truck. I guess he was probably a farmer. Uh, and the other one is from, I think, somebody. Uh, it says like Special Olympics bowling was some, something that they did. Um, the different, just different things that people like to do. You can go to the next one, Kelsey. Uh, I was partial to these two. <laughs> I guess uh, these people liked quail. If you can see, there's a family of them. And then that one on the right has a little metal cutout of a quail. Um, just things that people found important to them or that they enjoyed doing. And uh, this last one here on the next slide was one of the older ones in in the cemetery, um, 1909 is when the when they died. I didn't even get a picture of their name. Shows you how quickly we're forgotten. But um, 
and I'm sure there's older ones there, but you probably can't see it, but I looked up uh, what was written on it, and uh, it was written by a pastor in West Texas. So a, a guy died uh, in West Texas. He was like 44. Uh, it was kind of sudden. He had a heart attack, and his pastor wrote, uh, he wrote this. And so whoever this was um, had it written on there, and it was by H.T. Harris. I guess he was a pastor here in West Texas. And it says about this individual, we loved him. Yes, we loved him, but Jesus loved him more. And he has sweetly called him to yonder shining shore. The golden gates were opened. A gentle voice said, come. And with farewells unspoken, he calmly entered home. Um, <clears throat> and my point in bringing this up, like, why did I go to the cemetery and like a weirdo and walk around? Um, was that the things that we care about and that we love and that we enjoy doing, whether we're farmers or coaches or we like basketball or quail, even as important as they are, um, won't really matter uh, when it comes to the end of time. What will matter most is if we are united with Jesus in this eternal story from the beginning of time that we've looked at today that God has laid out before us. Um, that's what's going to matter. And uh, we are a part of this story, and we share in this story, uh, not just with each other here, but with believers from all time, with, with uh, Moses and David and Peter and Paul, um, the universal church from all time and history and the whole world, and uh, as well as each other here in our local, our local church. And uh, that's something that unites us. We all have a hope in this story and a hope where we, uh, we don't just end up as a forgotten pile of bones. And I think that's the emotion that is evoked when you go to a seminary, cemetery, like very different places, but uh, a cemetery and you, you walk around and look because death is solemn and uh, sobering and, and tragic. And uh, we can celebrate what we loved about people but the truth is that death is terrible, and it was not uh, God's design for us, right? And so the good news is that we don't get stuck on just being that pile of bones. Uh, unfortunately, if, if you don't believe in the story, that's kind of where you end up. But we have a hope that that's not. So um, in love and in community and in unity, uh, if you aren't a part of this story, the only one that matters I, I would invite you uh, to come be a part of it to unite yourself with Jesus um, and if you if you have um, and you're not a part of a, a family I would encourage you to share uh, in this story with us to come and join us and so with that I would say let us all be a part of this eternal story together Father in heaven, when we look at your word and the story that you've written, you are the greatest author um, there is, Lord. We, we're just in awe that you're not bound by time or anything like that. You've written a story um, that is undeniable by many different people, but it all points to the same thing, that you loved us, that you come to redeem us, 
so that we are not a forgotten pile of bones, Lord, but that we may dwell in a new creation with you in new bodies. And uh, Lord, I ask that you would help us to contemplate our nature, um, that we would number our days, that we would grow in wisdom, that it would affect how we treat each other and how we make our plans. Um, Lord, thank you that we can be united with all those that are lost um, from the very beginning of time to this man who was buried in the cemetery to Miss Mary Watts. Lord, help us to know what it means to share in the story together as a church, not just individually, but that you love the church and you gave yourself up for the church, for the body of believers. Lord, we love you, and we know that you love us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.